0: On the first Friday of every month, I get up early to geek out over the jobs report. And April's was a big deal. At 3.9% unemployment, average earnings up 2.6% over the past year. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And those numbers tell us that yes, we have a pretty healthy labor market mostly, but there are still millions of Americans sitting on the sidelines or not earning as much as maybe they should. And that's important because this data is telling us that in this moment of uncertainty about trade policy or what kind of jobs we're training our future citizens for, there are some very big unknowns. And today, we've got a lot of stories about different kinds of work, making money, and the changing environment we do it in. So we're going to start with how we prepare those workers of the future, more than 600,000 of them. I'm talking about students in the second largest school district in the country— the Los Angeles Unified School District. It's brought in a guy with a business background, Austin Butner, to be the new superintendent. He's been an investment banker, philanthropist, deputy mayor of L.A., and publisher of the L.A. Times. And with nationwide unrest around teacher pay and conditions, I asked, why does he want this job now?
1: It's about the kids. My own roots, my mom was a teacher. Uh, my dad worked very, very hard to make sure that I had a great public education. Uh, it's that common place. It's it's the community place, the common place, the community connects. And if we can provide students that same opportunity I had with a great public education, uh, what a gift, what an honor to be able to work towards that.
0: Where do you start? You know, when I look at the numbers, um, LAUSD has $15.2 billion uh, in pension liabilities. Uh, potentially a budget deficit of some $380 million by the 2021 uh, school year. Do you tackle finances first? Uh,
1: Let's be careful when we look at a budget to remember it's not just a bunch of numbers on a page. It's a statement which reflects the values of the organization, reflects the values of the community it serves, the parents who entrust the lives of their children to get a great education in LA Unified. So, Part of what we have to do is take a step back before we can take a step forward. And in taking a step back, we need to look at the resources we have. We're going to have to talk to the community about how we find more resources. And part of the challenge is going to be to have to make sure that where we are investing resource today reflects the mission of the organization, which is to help every child achieve and reflects the values of the community it serves.
0: That all sounds like you know, a series of laudable goals. But I guess in terms of executing that, you are going to have to make some tough choices. Does that mean layoffs, salary reductions? How do you make those numbers work?
1: School districts, you know, great school leaders, great schools are what make great school districts, not the other way around. And if we work back from the student in their classroom, when you talk about things like cuts, uh, cuts, if that means there are fewer teachers, it means classroom sizes are larger. It means students aren't getting the knowledge, the attention, the insight, the inspiration that they need. So we have to be careful when we start going down that path that we don't wind up with a self-fulfilling prop- proposition where the outcome, the inspiration, the education of that child gets worse. So uh, we have to approach it pretty cautiously. Uh,
0: another big part of this uh, puzzle and, and, you know, something that's been going on in LA Unified for a while is the question of enrollment. Uh Some parents have chosen to send their kids to charter schools and enrollment has fallen, I guess, by what, 30% since 2004. Um, Where do you see enrollment as a a priority for you?
1: Let's reframe slightly. In Los Angeles, about 500,000 students today, this morning, woke up and went to a traditional public school. About 100,000 woke up and went to a charter public school. That's A little bit of a false choice. Uh, What we have to do is make sure the 500,000 students in the traditional public school are getting the best possible education, and the 100,000 students in a charter public school are getting the best possible education. Uh, But to frame this whole thing as a conversation about charter, no charter, I think misses the bigger point, which is we have to make sure every school is doing the best possible job for students in that school. Hold all schools uh, to the highest possible standard, and that's what's going to help the kids. Well,
2: clearly,
0: you have a different background than many of peop- many of the people who have been in this job in L.A. before, but it is not uncommon in a big school system for someone with a business background to be tapped. Um, there have been successes and failures in that respect. Certainly in New York, Kathy Black lasted, what, some 90 days. And I guess I'm curious, do you think a school system and can Joel run Klein like a business? A, Joel Klein
1: lasted a decade, yeah. I, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. So I've been involved with leading large, complex uh, organizations, private and public. Uh, and you learn things. You learn that the there are differences. You learn that the values of the organization the purpose of the organization can be different. Schools don't have a bottom line. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't measure and hold accountable. It doesn't mean you can't make sure your workforce is well-trained and have the tools they need to succeed. It doesn't mean uh, communicating with your customer base, if you will, which are the parents and the communities that we serve. Those are similarities across all enterprises, whether they're serving the needs with public resources for the public good or a private organization. Um, I also think it's important in any new organization is to make sure you listen and understand carefully. Word choice matters a lot. When I was involved in Russia many, many years ago, I got into a heated debate with an individual about why business at that point in time needed to make a profit. We were helping set up uh, certain tools to support a market economy in Russia, and this elected official vehemently disagreed. Uh, I left. I talked to my interpreter afterwards, and I asked him what he thought I was trying to say. And this young man, the interpreter, said, well, it's simple. It's when you profit is when you take advantage of someone. Hmm. Now, I'd had a lemonade stand as a kid, and that's probably the first time I learned that revenues less cost is profit. Uh, But this gentleman that I was in this heated debate with in Russia never had a lemonade stand. Uh, And in the Soviet system, profit was all about taking advantage of someone else. And I think one of the most important things when entering a complex uh, uh, enterprise organization like LA Unified is to make sure that we use word choice carefully, that I understand what's being conveyed, that we try to distill some of the jargon into plain English. And that word choice I have, I use the word change and it means to me it, – it connotes something very positive uh, to those who work there today that might be – it might be more risky. It might be change is difficult. It might be change um, could be viewed as somehow criticism of what's being done and it's not that at all. We just have to find a way to better serve the needs of kids, to close that opportunity gap that you and I spoke of earlier. Uh, and the best word I can think of is change. But I understand that some people may interpret that in not so positive a fashion, but we have to get better at what we do. Uh, and I think that that transference between public and private, those who have been successful, understand at its roots, start with communication, be willing to listen, make sure that what you're trying to do as a leader is well understood by the organization. And it sounds simple talking about it with you, but uh, it's not so simple to execute, and it takes uh, a little bit of forethought. <laughs>
0: Before I let you go, I'm just curious. You may not have thought about this yet, but when you think about the kind of impact you want to have on this school system and on the lives of these children and parents, um, you know, over whom you will have great influence, what do you want the takeaway to be?
1: I made it better. I mean, it's, it's a privilege and an honor. It truly is to be part of the leadership team of an organization where so many people entrust the lives and the future of their child to that organization. That's a special place. You have to respect that. You have to honor it and you have to understand that brings with it a lot of consequence in the decisions you'll be part of. But if I can look back in a period of years, not weeks and months and said, I helped create a better opportunity for that student to be inspired and achieve and take a great public education and do wonderful things in their life and be happy like I have been in my life uh, I'll consider that a grand success.
0: Austin Butner, thank you. Thank you. The economic news has got a lot of digits in it. So let's check in on this week's news by the numbers with Marketplace's Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner.
3: Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... Five. That's how many episodes Trader Joe's has released so far of its new podcast. Wait, did you say Trader Joe's has a podcast? Yes. The grocery store is said to be revealing secrets behind its most famous products and what makes their crew members smile so much.
4: Reviewers of the podcast say it's making them buy new products.
3: But Marketplace listeners already know the true story of Two Buck Chuck. We covered it on the podcast last year, and you can find a link at Marketplace.org. Twenty. That's how many pounds, or around $27, it costs for a sweatshirt selling at H&M in England with the words broke emblazoned across the front.
4: It's a part of a micro trend in slogan t-shirts called, quote, poverty chic.
3: And it's getting a lot of criticism from writers, models, social media users, and members of the British Parliament.
4: Because, you know, if you're broke, are you really going to spend 27 bucks on a sweatshirt like that?
3: H&M caught controversy earlier this year for an image on its website a lot of people called racist.
4: 1,600.
3: That's how many scooters the startup company Bird says it has zooming around the streets of San Francisco. Leave it to Silicon Valley to innovate a massive trend in scooter rentals.
4: They're electric scooters you rent for less than $2 a ride and pay 15 cents a minute to ride them.
3: Enough people have complained that city officials voted unanimously this week to cap the number of scooters allowed on San Francisco's streets.
4: If I really wanted to ride a scooter, I'd just grab my razor from the back of my garage. It's
3: way easier to do a sick tail whip (laughs) on one of those.
0: The past few weeks talking about Facebook, data collection, and privacy. But what you do online and how that changes from country to country isn't governed in the way you might think. Who makes the rules for what can and can't happen on the internet is complicated. Laura DiNarda studies this. She's a professor at American University and she wrote the book, The Global War for Internet Governance.
5: Welcome. Thank you very much.
0: So I'm going to ask you sort of a basic but I guess complicated question,
5: which is um, who governs the Internet? Well, many people view the Internet as uncontrollable or not governed, Hmm. but it is already governed, just not in the traditional sense of governmental control. It is governed through an ecosystem that involves the private sector, traditional governments, and also new institutions
0: Well, and when we think about it in that way, you know, you mentioned we're not talking about traditional governance in a, I guess, political way. How do governments feel about that? After all, different governments have very different approaches to to
5: kind of how they see the internet. Well, that's true. There is a very essential tension right now between different visions for the internet. One envisions an internet that generally supports the free flow of information but there is another view of the Internet that is in some ways rising, and that's what I would call cyber sovereignty. And you see that coming out of China with the, the systems of filtering and censorship that they have. You see it in Russia. You see it in Iran. And it's, it's actually been happening uh, for quite a while. Probably the best example of that authoritarian tendency towards the free flow of information was the 2011 Egyptian shutoff of parts of the Internet and cellular networks as well.
0: Well, so how then, when we think about kind of the Internet moving forward and this kind of series of governing actors that you mentioned, how does that tension either
5: get resolved or or does it explode in some way? It's going to explode uh, more so than it has already. Uh, This is why I sometimes use the term uh, global war for Internet governance. Yeah, that's your book title. I stand by that provocative title because – now governments recognize that control of the Internet has become a proxy for political power. It's a way to reach across borders to enact different activities that can't be done locally. So you, you see this with uh, cybersecurity attacks that take down governments or um, hack into uh, infrastructures that are very critical, such as – Um, energy systems. Um, Cyber is absolutely now considered the fifth domain of warfare. And so we see these kinds of politically motivated attacks on various sectors as well as governments. Well, so how do private companies figure into this? Because,
0: you know, some of them are kind of domiciled in one country, but then others
5: operate across borders. The private sector owns and operates the networks that keep everything running. They cross borders, And they make decisions on their own about what information to block, um, what are the conditions of speech, for example, on social media platforms, what kinds of privacy we have. They're increasingly involved in dealing with attacks such as the Russian social media influence campaign around the U.S. presidential election. So they're absolutely at the front and center of this. And governments, in fact, can't really do anything on the Internet without Turning to these private companies. I want to ask you about one
0: specific thing. We, we've been talking about internet governance, but there also seems to be, to, to use the war metaphor, um, an arms race for control of a lot of different kinds of cyber technology, and in particular, blockchain. What is happening there,
5: and why is that important? Blockchain tracks and manages any kind of transaction via encryption and mathematical calculations rather than a transaction being authorised by a central authority. It takes central authorities out. One way to think about it is a distributed database that tracks a continuously growing set of records. So we've heard Russia uh, make a lot of claims to uh, wanting to become very savvy in blockchain, wanting to take the lead in blockchain. Um, Who sets the standards for these things? Who controls these kinds of systems? Uh, The whole purpose of it is to take centralized authorities out. But it's very important to remember that these are not black box technologies. Somebody actually designs them and somebody sets the standards for them.
0: When we think about this idea of a war for Internet governance, is there a way to measure who's winning that war?
5: Depends on, on who you ask. So for an authoritarian country, winning the war means how do you co-opt the infrastructure of the internet in order to enact surveillance, to stop the flow of information, and to enact control over citizens. In other countries, winning the war means how do we keep innovation flowing, how do we have um, you know, economic success, and how do you enable uh, freedom of expression to occur. We've been talking about
0: sort of things we know. Um, Where are we going next? What are the new fights here?
5: The internet is no longer merely a communication system. It's uh, something that is embedded into the physical world, whether medical systems, cars, or refrigerators. There is um, attention to using this to further intelligence gathering and to disrupt systems. Uh, So I think that we're at a moment of opportunity now as the technologies develop to get out ahead of it. And I do hope there is more policy attention to this emerging area.
0: Laura Dinardis, professor and director of the Internet Governance Lab at American University.
5: Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much.
0: to those global policies. A U.S. trade delegation has been in China this week to talk about the threat of tariffs on both sides. People in the import and export business are especially vulnerable. A lot of them have been gathering in southern China for one of the world's largest trade fairs. Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack was there and she joins us now. It's good to have you back. Thanks for having me. For, for everyone who is not following this kind of moment by moment, remind me where we are in this back and forth over trade between China and the U.S.
6: Right. Well, the U.S. has imposed a 25 percent tariff on steel, 10 percent tariff on aluminum imports, and those are mainly seen to be targeting China. So in response, Chinese officials have imposed their own tariffs on American citrus fruits, pork, wine, nuts, in total worth three billion dollars Uh, Of products. Now, the U.S. then followed up with threats of more tariffs on $150 billion worth of items from China. China has then promised it will respond in equal measure, although none of these have been imposed yet. So it becomes sort of a guessing game which products are going to be hit next. Well, what is it like to be a manufacturer in China right now? It's full of uncertainty. A lot of the manufacturers I spoke to, at first they tried to put on a brave face. They said, oh, the impact is going to be minimal uh, or it's not something they can really worry about. But there are some real practical reasons because people in China cannot elect their top leaders. So sometimes they can get in trouble for just seeming like they're criticizing what the government is doing. Mm. However, after some prodding, I did get one TV manufacturer to admit that he feels helpless. And this includes also manufacturers who are not Directly affected or targeted by the tariffs uh, because they're worried that the trade friction could increase the uh, cost of raw materials and also to make the U.S. dollar weaker. Now, this is something that have really, really made business really hard on these manufacturers because the U.S. dollar has been down 10 percent against the Chinese yuan uh, over the past year. So manufacturers in China certainly don't feel like they are winning.
0: One of the reasons for the possible $150 billion in tariffs is because the U.S. says its companies operating in China are forced to transfer trade secrets to their Chinese counterparts.
6: When you talk to to manufacturers in China, um, what do they make of that argument? Well, a lot of them feel it's just an excuse to suppress China's rise. Uh, They do acknowledge that intellectual property protection uh, is lacking in China, but there have been some improvements and that, of course, this problem doesn't just affect U.S. companies. It also affects Chinese companies. Um, So a lot of manufacturers said that they don't really see a correlation between uh, intellectual property right protection and tariffs against products that benefit from China's industrial policies. Manufacturers here are asking, so, what's the problem? China is a developing country, and it's very easy to forget this point if you were visiting mega cities like Guangzhou or even Shanghai here. There are multiple skyscrapers, beautiful roads. But I spoke to Candy Chen, who's 38, and she remembers her family being so poor that she had to split an apple between her three other siblings. Wow. She's now with a manufacturer called Jinlong Machinery and
7: Electronics. So she tells
6: me that China is a big country, but only the coastal areas in the east are well-developed. There are so many poorer regions. Some children from mountain areas don't have enough to eat. Some of them can't even go to school. So this is why China still protects a lot of its industries, and it makes it hard for U.S. companies to operate here. Well, with all of this
0: sort of overhang, how do manufacturers in China plan to cope with these potential
6: U.S. tariffs? Well, some of them say they're going to expand their other markets, in particular to Southeast Asia, which is booming. Uh, others are planning to shift their production bases to Vietnam, Mexico, in some cases, maybe even to open a factory in the U.S. Hmm. But then you have to keep in mind that this then makes their products uh, more expensive. And ultimately, it's going to come down to us, the consumers, who will have to pay the extra costs. Because remember, the reason that people in America, the retailers, they are shifted from made in America to made in China is all about price. Um, So a lot of the manufacturers here hope that the two nations will resolve the issue through negotiations because, as one seller told me, uh, the two economies are joined at the hip. You know, we're sitting here talking
0: about tariffs, and it's something we think about on the show. I guess I'm wondering, how big a deal is this in the overall sort of sense of how the Chinese economy is doing right now? How important is it when you're... In the mainland, thinking about kind of China's economic performance.
6: So at the moment, the tariffs are hitting a very small section, right? Mm -hmm. Chinese steel um, being sold to the U.S. is a very small portion, Um, but it's the implication. So a lot of these manufacturers, maybe they're not directly hit yet, but they are indirectly affected. As I mentioned about the U.S. dollar, all of these transactions are settled in U.S. dollar. So they're being hit in that way. In terms of the wider economy, people who are not in the import-export business, who are not dealing directly with American companies, they don't really see a huge uh, impact and they don't see it as a big problem because in China now, they do feel a lot more confident. And don't forget... The U.S. is not their main market. Um, they are the biggest trading partner with their Southeast Asian neighbors, with North Asia, so and also in Africa and in the Middle East. So there is this sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say optimism, but there's a lot of people here who will say, OK, well, if the U.S. doesn't want to do business with us, uh, we can switch tack. We will uh, go to other countries. And they have been making very good relationships, uh, making good relations with these countries, whereas the U.S. has been in retreat and focusing more on domestic issues. China has been aggressively going out and forming these relationships. So when people are thinking about the um, economic impact, they're looking at these other factors as well um, that could help mitigate um, or cushion at least the impact of these tariffs. Jennifer Pack joining me from Shanghai. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: If you've been sniffly lately, you're snotty, or want to claw your own eyes out, as I do, you are not alone. It's allergy season, and pollen can be brutal. Some of you wrote in to commiserate. Derek Golan in Chicago calls it allergy Armageddon. Annie Meek in Arkansas is on four daily medications. Celia McCord in Alabama has to go to the doctor every three months. And you're not imagining things. Allergy season is getting worse, and it's getting longer. And yeah, there's a cost to all this. We brought in an expert to give us the lowdown.
8: Hi, I'm Dr. Rita Kachiru, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at UCLA.
0: So first things first, just how much of the population is prone to allergies?
8: So it's anywhere from 8 to 15 percent in the U.S., but it's about 20 to 30 percent worldwide. There's definitely been an increase in incidence In the industrialized countries, so over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been an increase in allergy. And part of the thought is the whole hygiene uh, hypothesis that perhaps we're too clean of a society. And when we're not exposed to bacteria, our ability to train our immune system to tell the difference between a harmful organism, like a bacteria, versus a harmless organism, like grass and allergen, is altered.
0: Cleanliness is one thing, and climate change is another.
8: Warmer temperatures and a milder winter causes plants to produce and release pollen earlier, so you have a longer allergy season. And that since it's starting earlier, there's a priming effect. So the initial time you're coming into contact with the pollen, by the end of the season, you're having a much more severe reaction.
0: Allergies cause rhinitis. It's an inflammation of the nose, and that is not good when it comes to work. A 2011 study from Quest Diagnostics found that people with allergies stay home from work an average of 1.7 days during the allergy season.
8: They tend to be less productive because the symptoms of rhinitis, whether it's from allergy or irritant, is a similar symptoms to what you get when you have a cold, what we call viral rhinitis. So that inflammation is the same. There are different cells involved, but the inflammatory response is similar. And the release of histamine and cytokines causing those symptoms are similar. And so... Just like when you have a cold and you're feeling lousy and your head is congested and I can't breathe and I don't feel good. It's a similar symptom. So a lot of times people confuse allergies for recurrent viral infections. They say I'm getting sick all the time, but it's actually allergies because the symptoms are easily confused. So
0: how to put a stop to allergies?
8: When we talk about the treatment, treatment of choice is avoidance. And in that also, within that avoidance measures, there's cost in buying the dust mite covers and air conditioning units to keep the humidity low. And there's, there's, you know, there's cost in that. And then of course there's cost in the antihistamines, um, which are the first line of uh, treatment for allergies and um, nasal sprays and other allergy medications, as well as allergy shots. So yes, it, it is very expensive. I don't know the exact number, but it's definitely very expensive.
0: How expensive? Some studies put total spending on allergy treatment in the U.S. between 4 and $11 billion a year. But if you're not ready to drop big money, Dr. Catru has a couple of tips.
8: The best thing to do is to try to clear... The pollen particles from attaching to the mucosa in the nose or the mouth before it you know, attaches to prevent it from attaching because it needs to, in order to trigger inflammation, it has to initially have that attachment. And so I'm a very big um, supporter of the sinus rinse. So clearing your nose of um, allergens and so just salt, baking soda and distilled water. Um, You have to make sure it is distilled water or boiled water. You can't use straight tap water because there's a amount of bacteria that may cause sinus infections or nasal gargles in the shower or eye rinses, rinsing the body and the hair before you go to bed because pollen does fall on the hair and the body. And so, again, we're just trying to decrease the exposure to the pollen before it actually attaches to the mucosa. Healthy diet also does make a difference. It's not just a fad, but vitamin D is essential for not only lung development, but also the immune system. And so that's important. And since we know allergy is an abnormal immune response to something that's otherwise harmless, like an allergen, vitamin D will help support our immune system to tolerate things that are Harmless. There's also herbal remedies that have been shown to help decrease inflammation in general, like chamomile tea, peppermint tea. Those have been shown to decrease histamine.
0: That's Dr. Rita Katru from UCLA's Allergy and Immunology Program. You can read more on our website. Just go to marketplace.org. This week, the city of Miami suspended a police officer for kicking a handcuffed suspect in the head. Use of force by police has come under increased scrutiny in recent years, especially in communities of color. It's raised concerns around aggression and how officers can control it. One police department in Oregon is turning to mindfulness as a possible solution. Melanie Savchenko has that story.
9: Police Lieutenant Richard Gorling sits cross-legged on a yoga mat, eyes closed, in a recreation room in Hillsborough, Oregon.
3: As we begin this
8: sitting meditation practice, the invitation will be to take a couple of deep in-breaths and out-breaths.
9: In front of him, around 25 first responders, most of them police officers, follow his lead. This is Gorling's introduction workshop to mindfulness meditation.
3: Just sinking a little bit deeper into
8: the weight of gravity. I think in many ways, mindfulness is a foundation for the evolution of policing in America. It's a foundation for us as an institution to take a really fair and deep introspective look at systems that, frankly, the data show are oppressive to certain populations, in many cases to people of color.
9: Gorling still serves as an officer with Hillsborough Police Department, but has been teaching his mindfulness workshops since 2012. He thinks that the practice can improve the mental well-being of cops and help them respond more compassionately to those they serve.
3: The thing I think is interesting is mindfulness does whatever we need it to do, or at least that's the way it's talked about.
9: That's Nicholas Van Dam. He teaches psychology at the University of Melbourne, Australia. He's conducted research on mindfulness and meditation.
3: We don't have a good definition or a reliable definition of what mindfulness is. It basically ends up being this panacea and people kind of apply it to whatever they want to apply it to. 10 conveyor
9: belts of thought. Back in the workshop, the officers gather in groups on their yoga mats to debrief after their first guided meditation with Gorling. Lacey Sparling is a sergeant with the Portland Police Bureau.
5: Times are changing, and so I think there is a lot more focus on training that's thoughtful and really getting police
9: officers to be more intuitive about what's going on with them, the effects of stress. Gorling brings workshops like this to police officers across the country. The price varies per person, From $150 for a one-day workshop to $700 for a three-day retreat, the Menlo Park Police Department in Northern California recently invested in training its entire force in mindfulness for a grand total of $170,000.
1: Okay, that's my focus point. Feel the tip of your nose, feel your nostrils, feel the breathing. And It's something that's very different than shooting and Fourth Amendment training and all of the things that we do.
9: That's Lee Dabrowski, chief of the Hillsborough Police. He said his department has already introduced rounds of mindfulness training to its officers for under $6,000. That's just a sliver of the almost $3 million Hillsboro spends on medical and mental health care per year. The department is also working on a pilot program to introduce yoga training.
1: It's to help the officers perform better, but also make their home lives better.
9: And there's evidence of this. Matthew Hunsinger an associate professor at the School of Graduate Psychology at Pacific University, helped conduct an eight-week study on the effects of mindfulness on police officers.
1: We saw improvements in stress. We saw decreases in burnout. We also saw that they reported
3: engaging in less aggression.
9: Even so, psychology professor Nicholas Van Dam says studies like this one might be overreaching in its results.
3: My concern is, well, the research we've done really hasn't shown that mindfulness necessarily outperforms cognitive behavioral therapy or other interventions. I mean, in certain cases it does, but it's hard to know, are people just getting better because they're getting something or are people getting better specifically because they're getting mindfulness?
9: But for Andrew Roberts, a sergeant of criminal investigation in Salem, it's worth a shot.
3: I don't know if it'll change how we police.
9: I think other things will change that. I think it will change how we deal with the pressures of policing. In Hillsboro, Oregon, I'm Melanie Savchenko for Marketplace.
0: When I was little, I wanted to be a paleontologist. And we all have our dreams of becoming a doctor, a vet, ice cream flavor developer. But how do you get to work in a certain
7: profession? We take a look with our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. I am Sarah Fiddler. I'm a flavor guru at Ben & Jerry's. It's basically a combination of some food science and a lot of chef skills working with our consumer insight team to figure out you know, what's trending right now and then the flavor gurus get together, do some brainstorming, and then we have a fun job of going into our test kitchen and making up a lot of different variations of ice cream product. We taste them all. I'd say in a typical week at work, I probably eat about two pints total. I probably have about 15 pints in my freezer at home and pretty much every night have been digging into them. (laughs) I graduated with a food science degree and very shortly after decided I wanted to go to culinary school. I was looking for a way to marry my love of food with my kind of natural tilt toward science and the interest that I had in food science. We actually have a few chefs you know, that, that don't have a science background on the team and some people who have really strong chemist or flavor backgrounds. And we all balance each other out really well and learn from each other's strengths. I think the most important thing, honestly, is kind of an open-mindedness. Everyone's really excited to try something they haven't tried before. You know, give their honest feedback, and you know, see what a curry might taste like in an ice cream, or what figs taste like, or something like that. That that you might not expect. I mean, it definitely helps to have um, a background in knowing, you know, what might go together and what might not. But at the same time, being open to saying, you know. Maybe when I tried this in a cookie, it didn't work, but maybe it'll work with an ice cream background. When I first started, I was encouraged to just play around in the test kitchen and just, you know, don't think about trying to make something for the market. Just learn how to make ice cream on a small scale and play around with whatever you'd wanna play with. So I made a curry coconut ice cream which I thought was pretty delicious, and a few other people thought it was delicious, but um, I think it has a few years before it might become a fan favorite. (laughs) A lot of my friends think that I spend most of my day making and eating ice cream, and I do spend a good amount of time making and eating ice cream, but I think a lot of people would be surprised to know how much of my job is Kind of typical office, you know, doing paperwork, going to meetings. I think a lot of people are like, oh, you have the best job. You just get to play with ice cream all day. I'm like, yeah, it is a pretty awesome job. But there's also a lot of paperwork that goes along with it.
0: Have you ever wondered about a certain job? Tell us about it. We're weekend at marketplace.org. You can also leave a message on our voicemail. The number is 1-800-648-5114. And if you're listening via podcast, do me a favor, leave us a review. It helps other people find us. In this job, I do a lot of research, but I have never gotten into a subject so deeply that I started doing it for real. That is what happened to writer Maria Konnikova when she learned about professional poker for a book. And, well, she went from neophyte to winner. We reached her at a professional poker tournament in Monte Carlo where she's playing.
2: Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Lizzie.
0: You're a journalist. You have written about lots of different things. Uh, How in the world did you end up being so good at poker?
2: You know, that's the question that I keep asking myself, because I am not at all someone who's ever been into games. So a lot of people in the poker world, you know, they grew up playing some form of cards, often poker, or, you know, they're very competitive just at games in general, chess, Scrabble, Go, all of these things. I did none of that. I had no idea I'd be interested in it. It was just a completely foreign world. Um, And how I ended up coming to it was an interest in the topic of luck and this question of how much of our lives do we actually control. And someone told me, you know, if you're actually thinking about chance, you should look into game theory. So I read John von Neumann's theory of games and realized that it came from poker, that von Neumann was a huge poker player. And so I was like, wow, what is this poker thing? So that's how I started reading about poker and something clicked. I was like, oh, you know what? this could be the book. Me going on leave from the New Yorker, just becoming a professional player and using poker as a metaphor for life.
0: So you started working with a a professional coach and I guess I'm curious, like, was there a moment when you realized you were good at it?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question because it was one of these things where you just kind of jump in and say, you know what, the book is going to be okay no matter what. But when I realized, oh, my God, I can actually do this, um, I actually understand it, I'm getting better, I'm interested in the game, the game is really challenging me, that was one of, those, one of those moments that you wish for in any writing process where you realize that the story that you had envisioned is even better than what you had imagined.
0: All right, so you're on an economic show. Um, I got to ask you,
2: how much have you won? So, um, as of this week, um, within the last year, I've won over (laughs) $200,000. Are you going to quit journalism? uh, No, no. Everyone for some reason thinks that this means I'm going to stop writing. Um, writing is what I love. It's what I've always done. It's been my lifelong passion since, you know, the age of five when I announced to my parents that I was going to be a writer when I grow up and that's never going to change. But um, I have kind of fallen in love with poker because it's something that has challenged me intellectually, emotionally, psychologically in ways that I never really thought possible. And I really feel like I've grown as a person over the last year. So I definitely see a future where, you know, if I keep doing well, if I keep learning, if I keep feeling like this is a good environment for me, I see a future where I do both.
0: You wrote a previous book about confidence men um, and and con artists in general. (laughs) Are you applying some of the things you learned about conning people to playing poker?
2: Yeah. um, You know, in retrospect, it actually looks like my books kind of have built up to this moment because there are definitely a lot of parallels between the world of poker and the world of con artists. The one thing that I found out about con artists when I was researching the confidence game was that they are just incredible storytellers. They're the best storytellers in the world because stories are what convince you to believe in what they're saying. And once you're a part of the story, once you've bought into the story, you stop questioning, you become emotional, you stop being rational. So the best con artists are the best storytellers. And In poker, there's actually a lot of the same thing. When you are playing a hand, when you're playing your cards, you need to tell a good, compelling, consistent story. The people who are able to do it the best, they're telling a story that makes sense and you're being drawn along and you stop seeing the logical inconsistencies just like with conning. And if you're able to see through that, then you can be the person who is able to pick off those bluffs and actually play against the great storytellers.
0: You know people are, are going to listen to this and just be wildly jealous of you. And, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm one of them at this point. Um, do you think you're
2: lucky or are you really good at this? Um, I think it's both. Of course I'm lucky. I think it would be very foolish to think that this is just all me. When I won my first major title in poker, I got lucky. I played well. I was definitely skillful, but I also had a few lucky breaks. So the past year, I mean, I've been living and breathing poker. I've been studying and playing every single day. I haven't worked this hard at anything Um since I became a writer and was working at becoming a professional writer. So I've really given it my all. But, and by the way, this is one of the reasons I think poker is such a beautiful and necessary metaphor for life, because in life we also always have cards that we can't control, but it's much more difficult to see that. And so it becomes much easier to say, oh, it's all me when you get lucky. In poker, it forces you to actually be able to distinguish between how good you are and how good you ran. So run good is this term for having the cards go in your direction. And so I think in any successful endeavor, be it in poker or in life, you need to play well, but you also need to run good.
0: Do you have any sense how many
2: hours you have
0: spent playing
2: poker? (sighs) So if we're talking about just playing as opposed to studying, because studying, you know, we, we start getting into me studying eight, nine hours a day for the last year. So so that gets, that gets yeah, no, I've, when I said I've been working hard, I've really been working hard. But when I'm not playing, I'm not playing. Really, I'm just playing at tournaments. So on, so right now, you know, I'm in Monte Carlo for the European Poker Tour. And on any given day, I probably play here for about 12 hours. So if we say that a tournament is about 10 days, well, a a tour is about 10 days. um, So that's maybe 120 hours of poker at each stop. um, Then I think that for the last year, I've played about 2,400 hours worth of poker. Wow. Yeah, that I've never done that math before. And wow is exactly right. I did not know that I have spent that many hours of my life sitting at a poker table.
0: Maria Konnikova, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure.
0: Coming up on the show next week, we look into the business of romance novels with two sisters who run a bookstore dedicated exclusively
8: to readers who love love. We also speak in the same language as them. We try to be very steeped in romance landia. We're like, oh, you like enemies to lovers, but do you like enemies to lovers in a workplace? Or do you like enemies to, you know, there's, there's so many different kinds of enemies to lovers. Yeah. Do
9: you want them to be on the Oregon Trail or do you want them to be fighting vampires? Like, those are very different.
0: We're also working on a special show about the economics of disability. How has disability in any form impacted your life, at home, at work, or at school? Email us, we're weekend at marketplace.org, or leave us a message on our voicemail line. It's talk to text. The number is 1-800-648-5114. And we look forward to sharing your stories. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills, Peter balanon rosen and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Drew Jostad is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.